you, Pastor Doug, and our worship team. I am Pastor Jay. Good morning, and it is a privilege to welcome you on a new Lord's Day. I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we are in a series on the Ten Commandments. This weekend we come to the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Murder is one of the oldest sins on display in the Bible. In fact, the Bible records the very first murder in human history. Uh, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Murder, uh, we all know, has been a constant theme in movies and plays and novels throughout history. One of the classics is the Russian writer Dostoevsky in his great Russian novel, Crime and Punishment, he tells the story of a former law student in St. Petersburg who had fallen on hard times financially. And in desperation to get some needed cash, he chooses to murder an old woman uh, who is a pawnbroker. And so he plans it and arranges it. He, he, He refers to the older woman in his view as a stupid, ailing, greedy, good-for-nothing woman. Unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, as he carries out the murder, uh, the woman's sister happened to come in during the murder, and so he ends up murdering her too. Once the murder is complete, this former law student, throughout the novel, is, is plagued with confusion and paranoia and guilt. He ends up confessing to the murder and spending eight years in a prison in Siberia. I thought I'd do some just research briefly on Chicago, the city of brotherly love, and our stats on murder. Whenever we're around somewhere, either in the U.S. or overseas, and people are like, where do you live? Chicago. Oh. I always say, well, you know, it's city of brotherly love. We have less than 10 shootings in a weekend. We apparently love each other. But sadly, last year, not just shooting, I'm talking murders, uh, Chicago PD said we had 700 murders in Chicago last year. So murder is an epidemic. Murder has always been a huge problem for the human race, and it made God's top 10. Do not murder. So this morning we're going to dive in. This is a very, what this is, is a strong warning about the sanctity of human life. That's what this is, that all human life, and we will unpack that, is sacred before God. It's four simple words in English, only two words in Hebrew. Old Testament being written in Hebrew, most of it, some in Aramaic, but this was written in Hebrew. Exodus 20, 13, one of the shortest of the commandments, or the Hebrew calls them the 10 words, you shall not murder. Again, four words in English, only two words in Hebrew, and it leaves no ambiguity. This leaves no uncertainty that to take the life of another human being is wicked and evil because all human life is sacred. We'll get into the why in just a minute. So we're going to dive into this like we have the other commandments. We're going to look at the what, and then we will look at the why, and then we'll look at the how, how this is unpacked. So Exodus 20, 13, first of all, the what of the commandment. The old King James, I was raised on the King James Bible years ago, it translated Exodus 20, 13 as 
thou shalt not kill. And that's not the best translation. Most modern translations translate the word murder, not the word kill. And there's a reason for that. The Hebrew word translated here, ratzak, means intentional premeditated murder. It's not used that often in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. The Hebrew word for kill, different word, is used often in the Pentateuch, but not the word for murder. So in other words, God makes a distinction in the Bible between killing and murder. We see that. So all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So let me say that one more time. All murder is killing, but according to the Bible, all killing is not murder. What is prohibited in the sixth commandment is murder. That's very clear what it says. And th so the point here that human life is to be respected and is, there is a sanctity of human life that God says we are to place on it. And this, uh, this, the Sixth Commandment doesn't just forbid outright murder. There are other things in the Bible clearly prohibited. So, abortion would be one of these. The killing or the murder of an unborn child. The Bible is extremely clear. Whatever our cultural conversation right now, whatever the cultural climate right now, whatever the craziness of our moral revolution unfolding right now, whatever our president or our Congress or our Supreme Court may or may not say, they're not the final law. God's law is the final law, and God's very clear from the moment of conception, a human being is there and is to be protected at all costs. And so abortion is murder. Uh, infanticide is murder, the killing of a baby after birth, which is increasingly becoming something cultures, even in Western culture, are endorsing. Suicide, self-murder is a violation of the sixth commandment. Now, let me add a word pastorally. Suicide, some are raised, especially Roman Catholics, that it's the unforgivable sin. It is not. Having said that, it is a grievous sin, and it is a wicked sin. And the question is, is it forgivable? It depends on if the person was genuinely born again or not. That's the issue. It's not the sin itself, but it is a violation of the sixth commandment. Let's understand, self-murder is just that. It's murder. And then another form, this violation here would be euthanasia, which is physician-assisted suicide or, or, or non-physician-assisted suicide, but helping somebody kill themselves is also forbidden in the sixth commandment. Now, I said not all uh, not all killing is murder. So are there exceptions in the, in the Bible? And the answer is yes, there are. And it's important to note these. There's at least three types of killing in the Old Testament that are not murder. So let us note these. Number one, the sixth commandment does not prohibit all killing in self-defense. If you would turn over to chapter 22 of Exodus, there's an example of this. Gonna, it goes back to this. Young people, remember this. What does the text say? That's what we got to keep clear in all of this. Not, what did I grow up with? Not, well, that's not the way I heard it. We hear that so often with people. Well, that's not the way I grew up. That's How we grew up is important. Traditions we inherit are important. We're not saying that. But they're not the final arbitrator of truth. Whether I grew up this or whether I grew up that, 
whether my parents taught me this or that, whether the church I went to emphasized this or that, those are important. They're not the final arbitrator, however, of truth. The only final arbitrator of truth is the infallible, inspired Word of God. And that is why we always go back to the question, what does the text say? And so always just want to keep emphasizing that because it's so easy for any of us when we're looking at any doctrine, especially one we don't particularly like or we're not inclined towards or that's new to us, to say, that's not the way I was raised or I don't like that. That's not the issue. The issue is what's the text say. So let's look at what the text says. Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, very clear is that certain forms of self-defense, if killing takes place, are not murder. If a thief, verse 2, Exodus 22, verse 2, if a thief is caught breaking in, now some translations add at night, that's legitimate, although it's not in the Hebrew text. It's implied because what's implied, you'll see, First of all, it's implied that they broke in and seemed to catch the homeowners by surprise. That implies night. But it's verse 3 that makes it clear it is implying night because verse 3 talks about, well, if it happens during the daylight hours. So that's why some translations add at night. That's, that's legit. So if a thief is caught breaking in or breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So the, the homeowner is surprised, feels their life is at stake or whatever, and they do a blow, they do some kind of deadly uh, action, and the person's dead. According to the Mosaic Law, the homeowner, the property owner, is not necessarily guilty of murder. But, verse 3, if it happens after sunrise, or the implication here is, during the daylight hours, when you're not so surprised, the defender is guilty of bloodshed if they kill the person. So just the point is very clear. Biblical scholars point this out. In the Mosaic Law, there was a distinction. In terms of self-defense, whether it happened at night when you were unaware and probably felt more threatened and vulnerable than if it happened during daylight hours. I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that, but there is a distinction in the Mosaic Law. So the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit all killing in self-defense. Number two, the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit killing in certain matters of war. And this is very clear in the Bible. There are times that God commanded his people to exterminate either a people or a city in the Old Testament. We call these the Canaanite genocides. Now, in our day, a lot of Christians get all churned up about this. It, it, these are difficult commands. They're not easy to read, but here's, here's the great danger. If I try to massage it and try to make it something that isn't true. I read one New Testament scholar not too long ago who said, well, these, really, uh, these weren't really commanded by God. Really, what happened is Joshua thought God commanded this and was wrong, and he went ahead and did it. And he was, it, was, it was evil. Well, that is not what the text says. That's what I'm talking about, reading into the text. The text is very clear on certain occasions. This is not the Muslim concept of jihad, by the way. This, that's a very different thing. Jihad in the Quran 
I've read the Quran. I've been in, Becky and I have been in a lot of Muslim countries and we talked a lot of Muslims. The concept of jihad is very clear. It is an, basically an open license to kill unbelievers anywhere, anytime. And Muslims are pretty open about that. That is, that is not what the Canaanite genocides were. The Canaanite genocides were very specific. Because of the extreme wickedness of an area or a people or a city, God said they are to be exterminated. Whether we're comfortable with the concept or not, we don't take wickedness like God does. One of the places Becky and I love to visit when we go to Israel. We're going in May with a tour. And I'll be lecturing at this site. I love to lecture at the biblical city of Hazor. Now, there's nothing there anymore. But Hazor was about the population of Crystal Lake. It is the largest city Joshua burned. And as you stand there today, it's basically pasture land. It was a large city for its day. And Joshua was ordered by God to slaughter all the inhabitants down to men, women, children, and animals there. That's, that's a difficult command. But one of the things I remind our, our group of as I'm giving a lecture there is this. The first lesson at Hazor is not the wrath of God. That usually surprises everybody as we're standing here. I said, the first lesson of Hazor is the mercy of God because this place existed for hundreds of years without God's judgment falling on it. And so the first lesson here is God's mercy. But there were times according to the Old Testament, when God said, those people are so wicked and I want you to occupy that area. I want you must get rid of all the wickedness. Whether we like that or not, whether we're comfortable with it or not, it's what the text says. It's what they were ordered to do. It was specific. It was targeted. It wasn't an open license to just go hunt and kill. And there are times in defensive war that killing was permitted in the Old Testament, and killing was not considered murder in those instances. And there, but there's a third one. So, number one, some killing was permitted in self-defense. Two, some killing was permitted in certain circumstances in war. And number three, the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. I have heard, think of one well-known pastor who's actually said the Sixth Commandment rules out capital punishment. No, it doesn't. <laughs> he, this particular pastor, I know, did not have training in Hebrew, and he missed a very elementary thing, that the word in the sixth commandment is murder, not killing. So there's different. Now I'm going to get into that in just a second. Okay, the why of the command. The why of the sixth commandment given in Genesis 1. That's the why. So if you go back to Genesis 1, let's look at it. Very important. So much goes back to Genesis. There's a ministry called Answers in Genesis, and the reason for the name, Ken Ham's ministry, is because so many of the answers to life's questions are back in Genesis, and so much is rooted back in Genesis. So what's behind the sixth commandment? Well, here it is. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but it's good for all of us to be reminded, especially right now in the moral climate in America with all the talk about rights and gender and what's normal and what's not normal. We need to go back and read in God's eyes what's normal. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Here's why the taking of a human life, especially murder, is wrong. 
God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So right up front, we're given dominion over animals. We're different than animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, kids, boys and girls, young people. Verse 27 is critical. Please, let's hear this. So God created mankind in his own image. That is not said of animals, and it's not said of angels. Angels are not in the image of God. Animals are not in the image of God. Only a human being is in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. There are only two genders. That's the way God, that's the way God set it up. And to go against that is to go against what Paul says in Romans 1 is against nature. That's not hate speech. That's love speech. Just because I say something you don't like or just because you say something I don't like or because some pastor says something we don't like or like, it's not hate speech if it's true. If it's true, it's love speech. And the insanity right now of the transgender movement is destroying the lives of thousands of young people. And I wish our president would get up and say, this is evil. I wish our Supreme Court would be more clear. I wish our political leaders would be more clear. I wish those on both sides of the aisle would be more clear. That this is evil. And we are butchering a generation of young people. And we are destroying them and we will be judged by God for what we are allowing and encouraging. So this is the why behind the whole issue. We're unique from the animal kingdom. And to take the life of a human being that from the moment of conception until dying breath is sacred in God's eyes is forbidden unless it's one of those other circumstances we talked about. Now, this brings up the issue of capital punishment. I want you to just go to Genesis 9 for a moment. Human life is so sacred and is to be protected so much that God instituted something. The Bible does not call it capital punishment, but that's what this is. Capital punishment. So the Bible is clear. Human beings created in the image of God. We are not the product of millions of years of blind evolution and chance. That's not of God. We are specially created by God. In Genesis 9, 6, we're told, now this is going to shake some of your worlds, but here's what we're told. Human life is so sacred that if you take a life, you must forfeit your own. In other words, capital punishment was instituted to uphold the sanctity of human life. If you don't understand that, you're not understanding what's going to be read here. So I'm going to read chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood. Remember, this is not just in the law. There was no Mosaic law here. There was, there was no Mo here. <laughs> no Mo. No, no Moses here. No Abraham. No Jews. There's no Israel here. This is, this is before all of that. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? We're told. For in the, what's the, te what's the text say? 
because in the image of God has God made mankind. Young people, human life is so sacred, so sacred that it's to be protected at all costs. If I take a life, for any, except for one of these other reasons, but if I take a life in murder, if I kill somebody like this, I forfeit my right to live. And then there's an example of this in Exodus 21. If you turn over to Exodus 21 for a moment, you actually have a real life example of this. 21, 12 to 14. There are a number of instances in the, in the Pentateuch when capital punishment is actually commanded. And again, it all goes back to Genesis 9-6. The answer is in Genesis. It's the why. Because human life is so sacred. So here's, a, here's, a, here's a, what we call a case study, so, so to speak. A real life example. Exodus 21, we're now in the Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law stretches from Exodus to Deuteronomy at 600 and some commands. Ten Commandments are the most well-known part of the Mosaic Law, but this is part of the law here. Anyone, verse 12, who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they're to flee to a place I will designate. So I'm going to stop right there. The Mosaic Law made a very clear distinction between intentional and unintentional killing. That's important to understand. And our law does too. Now, most countries, legal jurisprudence distinguishes motive, intentional versus unintentional. That's a common feature in just about any country's jurisprudence. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, it means it happens, then they're to flee to a place I will designate. But Notice verse 14, but if anyone schemes, meaning it's premeditated, pre-planned, and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Verse 15 even says anyone who kills, attacks, kills father and mother is to be put to death. So human life is so sacred so valuable in the eyes of God that God says, if you take a life, you must give a life. Capital punishment was instituted to uphold the value of human life. High value, a, a, a high view of human life, by the way, characterizes Judeo-Christian faith. That is why Jews and Christians have always been on the forefront for human rights. Very important, a vigorous defense of human rights. Why? It all comes down to worldview. How do you view a human being? The worldview of atheism, no God, or humanism, secular humanism, no God, ultimately leaves human rights just hanging in midair. The skeptic or the atheist or the humanist may say, well, human life is sacred and important, but there's, there's no basis for it. If you, ask, if you push them on why, there's really no distinction why human life is any different than anything else. Atheism, humanism, ultimately means no inalienable human rights, no intrinsic ontological value in God's eyes, no ultimate value. There can't be. One of the men that was most honest about this, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court, served on the U.S. Supreme Court. He was a justice for 
30 years, 1902 to 1932, one of the most famous names in legal history in the United States, he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And I give him credit for being honest. Here's his worldview. Remember, everybody has a worldview. You have a worldview. All your neighbors have a worldview. Every single human being believes something about the universe and about God or the gods or or our place in the universe. Nobody is devoid of some kind of a package of beliefs. They may not even understand them. They may not They may not be consistent. They may not know where their worldview came from, but everybody has a worldview. Oliver Wendell Holmes was just honest here. As an atheist, somebody who did not believe in God, did not believe human beings were created by God. Quote, he said, I see no reason for attributing to mankind a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Close quote. That is is consistent atheism. And I give him credit for at least being honest. In the atheist worldview, if there's no God, if there's nobody home in the universe except us, and we're just the products of blind evolution, random chance, that's true. may say I don't like it, but that's true in that worldview. Let me give you another example, a modern-day example. Dr. Peter Singer, who teaches at Princeton, still does, He's a professor of uh, bioethics at Princeton University to this day. Australian scholar, very popular, very popular author, and a very outspoken atheist, does not believe in any kind of a God. As a skeptic and someone who believes in evolution, doesn't believe in God, and believes human beings are no different than anything else on the planet, he now is arguing and has for some time for the legalization of killing disabled babies after birth and the killing of mentally incompetent people. That is where the culture of death will lead. When you no longer believe in a God, you have to move this direction and a culture will move this direction because you're cut off from divine revelation and the why. Friends, once you dismiss a personal God, you end up in what Yale historian Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands. Timothy Snyder teaches at Yale. He's a professor of history there. A couple years ago, I read his book called The Bloodlands. It's a fascinating, horrifying account of what took place between Berlin and Moscow from 1933 to 1945, just 12 years. And in that 12-year stretch, where God was vacated in the worldview of Hitler and Stalin, between Berlin and Moscow. Timothy Snyder from Yale documents in a way that nobody has ever quite documented to this day that 14 million non-combatants were slaughtered. This is not counting soldiers. This is not counting those who are combatants. These are non-combatants. Why? Because when you take God out of the picture, man dies. And he dies in mass quantities because there's no longer the Christian worldview. There's no longer a theistic worldview. There's no longer the belief that human life is precious because God made it that way. It's not an accident that dictators and brutal dictators who don't believe in God end up committing some of the worst genocides in history. And the Bloodlands, a book like the Bloodlands, thankful for something like that, documents exactly what happened. That's where you end up. All right, let's look at the how of the command this morning. 
And this is made easy for us by Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. I was talking to someone after the first service, and I said it's so easy. It helps in sermonizing when Jesus just takes the passage from the Old Testament and gives us the practical application in the New Testament. It makes preaching, it makes the work of preaching a lot easier. So Jesus did it for us here. For the how, we can turn to Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about the practical side of the Sixth Commandment in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And the key here is this. Who's he talking to? We've, some of you have been at that site right along the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. Beautiful area where he delivered this. He's talking Sermon on the Mount, likely hundreds of people there. Most of them probably Jewish in background. Very conservative religious people who likely believed they had never violated the Sixth Command. Most of us here today most likely would say, I've never murdered anybody. You know, you look at some of the Ten Commandments and you're like, ooh. But some of them you look at and you go, I'm good on that one, right? Most of us here have never murdered anyone. If you, if you have, number one, I'm glad you're here, and there's forgiveness available. I hope if you did, you have sought God's forgiveness. But these are, he's, the point he's talking to people here who are very religious, very conservative, and likely believe they were good on the Sixth Commandment. And Jesus says, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, verses 21 to 24. You've heard it said a long time ago, you should not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, now that's Aramaic. That's not Hebrew, it's not Greek. Raka. I said it in the first service off the cuff, so I, I better say it here because I'll get blasted here. You do a little word study on Raka, best we can tell, it means something like Green Bay Packer fan. <laughs> That's kind of what it means. So don't ever call somebody that evil thing because you could be in deep trouble according to the text here. I don't just just trying to be honest with the text. No, just, just kidding. Anybody who calls his brother or sister Raka is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be danger of the fire of hell. you got to give Jesus one thing. He, he didn't hold back when he talked about hell and judgment and damnation. I read a liberal scholar a number of years ago, New Testament scholar, who said, who, who didn't believe, he, he didn't believe in God. He was an atheist, New Testament scholar, and he said one of the reasons, he, one of his problems with Jesus, he said, he said, let's just be honest, Jesus was always talking about the wrath of God and hell and judgment. He said it's everywhere in the Gospels, and that's one of the things he, he didn't like about Jesus. But that's, that's what you have here, and it's very clear that if you even hate somebody, Jesus says, you're guilty of violating the sixth command. Now, it doesn't mean you're guilty of literal murder. There are degrees of sin, obviously. That's, the Bible's very clear. There are degrees of sin. However, bitterness, murder, and hatred are wicked sins, according to Jesus, and will be judged accordingly. Bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone is a form of murder. There's more than one way to murder people. That's Jesus' point here. There's more than one way to kill somebody and murder them. And yet, holding a grudge and bitterness is one of the most common traps. Hear this. Bitterness and grudge holding is one of the most common traps people fall into, even professing, Bible-carrying, evangelical Christians. Odds are very high 
today, sitting right here in an audience of this size, that dozens of us are holding a grudge against somebody. And the reality is, the only way to get rid of that is the hard work of repentance and forgiving somebody. There's no other way. If you go down a little further, verses 23, 24 there. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, in other words, you've sinned against them and you haven't cleaned it up, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled, then come and offer gifts. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't just sit there and pray about it and then go to them. Stop, go to them, then come pray and worship. A lot of us have that completely backwards. It's a very clear command. The bottom line, anytime I'm mistreated, anytime you're mistreated, have you ever been lied about? Of course. Have you ever lied about people? Of course. I've done both. Anytime you're lied about, anytime you're betrayed, Anytime someone has abused you or gone out of their way to be cruel or mean or whatever, here's the, here's the thing. The question I face is, will I choose to hold a grudge? Will I choose to sit on it and not forgive? And here's the key. This is critical. How I choose to respond when someone has hurt me, how you choose or are choosing right now to respond when someone has hurt you, shows what you really think about God. You can say anything you want about your systematic theology. What really shows what you believe about God is how you respond to people who have hurt you and wounded you. That's the true tale of what you believe about God. Our children's director, Heather Sukup, is starting a new series on our leadership blog on our website. One of her first blogs is entitled, and it's about siblings not getting along, and so it's for parents with kids at home. The blog is entitled, They're Going to Kill Each Other! <laughs> and ask important questions in light of the story about Cain and Abel about this whole issue of forgiving and how to help siblings get along. I would encourage you to take a look at that. But how I respond to those who have abused me, how I respond to those who betrayed me or went out of their way to, to, to sabotage, shows what do I believe about God. I've recommended R.T. Kendall's book before, Total Forgiveness. It is very good on forgiveness. And he says this, page 44. Although we often do not see it at first. By the way, this quote's worth the price of admission today. Ready? This comes from R.T. Kendall, former pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. He was a successor to the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones there in London. R.T. Kendall in his book, Total Forgiveness. Although we do not often see it at first, all of our bitterness is ultimately traceable to resentment of God. Hard words, but they're true. Why? Because the moment I start harboring something, a grudge, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness towards somebody, I'm really saying, God, you had no right to bring that in my life at all. That's what I'm saying to God. That's what you're saying to God. Some of you are saying that to God right this morning. You had no right to bring that situation, that person, those circumstances into my life. 
Now, we might never say that out loud, but that's exactly what's going on in our heart. And he nails it right here. Although we do not often see it at first, all of our bitterness is ultimately traceable to resentment of God. All right, as we close, the question has to be asked. Here's our summons before we go to the Lord's table this morning. In fact, this is the perfect segue into the Lord's table today, this sermon. Here's the closing question, and this applies to everybody. Is there someone you've been holding a grudge against that you need to forgive this morning and deal with God and do business with God and that person if they're still alive and still accessible? Or are you risking God's judgment by saying, no, I'm going to sit on this, frankly, and I'm not going to let it go? Good news, friends. Good news, young people. Good news, kids. God offers practical help and wisdom how to start the process. Now, let me say what forgiveness right up front isn't. It's, you don't just flip a switch and presto, you're, you're, you have feelings of forgiveness towards somebody and you, you let it go. Especially if it's long-term abuse, severe abuse. But there is a point when you have to stop walking that road and turn around. The old proverb that the, you know, every long journey has to begin with first step. You have to stop at some point down the road of grudge holding and bitterness and turn around. So here's four very practical helps as we close and go to the time of the Eucharist this morning. Number one, make sure you've been forgiven by God. Non-Christians can forgive, and they do. It's a lot easier if you know Christ and have his Holy Spirit inside you and you're one with Christ, in union with Christ, and have his Holy Spirit giving you the power to forgive. That means you've come to the understanding you're a sinner and a lawbreaker and a moral rebel and that you need forgiveness and Christ has forgiven you because you've cried out to him as Savior. The Bible would say it's a lot easier to forgive when that has taken place in your life. In fact, Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant and says, if you've been forgiven by God, it is dangerous hypocrisy not to forgive others. In fact, Jesus says, if that's true, you're going to be turned over to the tormentors or the jailers. Number two, realize that admitting to grudge holding or bitterness is one of the most difficult things to admit in our lives. I found this over the years. Becky and I found this over the years. Found it in my own life. Found it with others. You know one of the biggest euphemisms we use? It's actually a lie. It's partly true. Is people camp on the word hurt. Hurt. I've been hurt. I'm not bitter. I'm hurt. I can just tell you after several decades of ministry, that is probably the number one way people try to get out of this or I've tried to get out of this myself. I'm not bitter. I'm just hurt. And you don't understand how much I've been hurt. Well, number one, it doesn't matter if I understand. God does. He is the one in charge and he's running the show. And so that is, that is not a legitimate excuse. It's not a legitimate euphemism. Bitterness is one of the hardest things to admit to, but there is no, there's no healing unless we own up to it and call it what it is. We can't move on. There's a thousand ways people justify bitterness. Number three, Matthew 6. 
Remember the consequences if you don't forgive. Jesus, again, couldn't be clearer. So number one, make sure you've been forgiven by God. And if you truly do know Christ, it's massive, dangerous hypocrisy not to forgive someone else because what you're forgetting is how much God's forgiven you of. And secondly, realize that admitting to bitterness and grudges is one of the hardest things a human being is called to do. Number three, remember the consequences if you don't forgive. And Jesus says them in, John, in Matthew 6, 14, 15. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, it's always important. What is he saying? What is he not saying? And remember the principle of biblical interpretation. You interpret Scripture with Scripture. So you don't just take these two verses out of context and say, gosh, it looks like we're saved by forgiving other people. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That is not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what Paul teaches in the great book of Romans about justification by faith alone. This is not teaching, I earn my salvation by forgiving people. That's not what's being said. What Jesus is, 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 is stressing here is if we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, according to, this, according to Matthew 18, we'll be handed over to the tormentors. And that is speaking of God's eternal judgment, ultimately. Meaning, just to be clear, the point of Matthew 6.15 and of the parable of the unmerciful servant is that if, if I'm clinging to an unforgiving spirit and I'm continuing to cling to an unforgiving spirit, unforgiving spirit, what is really going on? I am, and the longer this goes, I'm just proving I don't know Christ, no matter what I've said. And I don't understand grace, and I certainly don't understand the gospel. And I certainly don't understand the amount of wickedness that God's forgiven me of. That's what Jesus is saying here. That by clinging to an unforgiving spirit and bitterness, I'm just showing the longer this goes on, likely I don't, I don't know Christ, and I'm not truly saved. So remember the consequences of not forgiving others. And lastly, remember what forgiveness is and is not. I say this all the time. We try to stress this all the time. What is it and what it is not? Bitterness, I mean, uh, 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 forgiving is not about saying, oh, it didn't happen, it wasn't a big deal. That isn't forgiveness. That's just denial, and that doesn't help. What do we say all the time? Forgiveness is an act of blame. Otherwise, there's nothing to forgive, right? Forgiveness is saying what you did was wrong, and what you did may have crossed over even wrong, this is evil, and I'm letting it go. I am not going to dwell on this anymore. I'm not going to have conversations with you when you're not even there anymore. You ever talk to people when they're not there? Yeah, we all have done that. We rehearse these things over and over and over and over and over and over. Boy, if I ever get alone with them, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to say, and then we talk to them like they're right there. When you start talking to people that aren't there, lots of issues going on, just saying. But one of them that is a tall tale sign of bitterness when you start having the same conversation over and over with a person when they're not even there. Forgiveness is an act of blame and it's saying, but I'm letting it go. I'm not camping on it anymore. Here is the best definition of forgiveness I can find in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13.5. And I close with this. 1 Corinthians 13.5. It is refusing to keep any record of the wrong. And it, now, it doesn't mean it's going to be scrubbed from your brain, 
but you deliberately are not holding it against that person anymore. That's grace. That's the gospel. And that's why it's so unique.